If you don't have notes, there's some at the front and the back. And you are going to need a Bible tonight. We're going to look up some passages about some of these things we discuss. In this series, this is the 12th week out of 12, uh, we're trying to equip you to be able to share the good news about Jesus with other people. I don't want to, and I've said this several times in this series, I don't want to reduce this class down to sort of evangelism training. Because a lot of the time when we say, here's an evangelism training program, what we say is, okay, memorize these three things and these verses, and then go find somebody and vomit it up on them. Just give it back to them, and then sort of just stand there awkwardly and wait. Like, okay, what are you going to do now? And that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to think about things in this Wednesday night series that pertain to the truth. Number one, things that you need to know. Mental, intellectual things that you need to comprehend. Facts, truth statements, principles. Uh, We spent several weeks just talking about basics. What is the gospel and what is conversion and what are we actually trying to share with people? What are the things that we need to know with our mind? What are the things that we need to believe These are not just sort of philosophical ideas that are nice to have rolling around in your head. These are things that need to be central to your your belief system, central in your heart, things that you hold dear, things that you don't just believe that they're true, but you believe that they're true for you. So we want you to know these things. We want you to believe these things. We want you to be ready to share these things, and that's moving from your head to your heart out of your mouth, that you open your mouth and you talk to people about these things. And I hope one of the things you've taken away from 12 weeks of talking about the truth is that we need to think about sharing the gospel less as a one-time conversation we have with somebody and more as an ongoing conversation we have with people over time. I don't want you to sort of have the pressure of, okay, I have to sit down with somebody, I'm going to share the gospel with them, I have to give them everything in one sitting, because we've talked about a lot of things, and if you give these people all these things, that's just a whole lot of information. So whether you, in this series, whether you've thought about your kids or your grandkids or a coworker or a friend or a mission trip that you've been on or you're planning to go on, hope that you don't think, okay, this is just 12 weeks of stuff and i got to boil that down to one 10-minute conversation. But these are just things we want you to know, believe, and you're ready to talk about. And lastly, that you can defend, and that's sort of adding all of those things up. The things that you know to be true and you believe to be valuable and precious and that you're willing to talk about are things that you're willing to defend to other people. And so one of the things we've talked about the last few weeks is the idea that I want you to be good missionaries, right? And a good missionary understands the people that they're trying to share the gospel with. So when we go to Kenya, it's difficult when you cross cultures, right? It's really difficult. But when we go to Kenya or this summer when we go to Alaska, it's going to be a different culture. When we go to Toronto, it's going to be a different culture. We want our people to understand as best they can the folks that we're going to share with. What are the ideas rattling around in their head? What does their worldview tell them about life and reality and truth and heaven and all of these things so that we can engage them in the best way? And that means for you guys in this room, we live in Odessa, Texas. We've spent several weeks now just trying to wrap our, our arms around the idea of worldview. 
And hopefully you are beginning to look at the people around you and you're sort of beginning to say, what is it that this person really believes? What is it that they need to hear about Jesus? Because different people are going to hear you differently when you say Jesus loves you and has a great plan for your life. People are going to hear that completely differently. So how can we engage people? I know I've told you before about some friends that I had in Amarillo. These friends moved to our church uh, when Brooke and I were still dating. We were in a nearly married, newly married Sunday school class. And uh, this new couple moved to Amarillo. They were from western New Mexico. And the place that they were from was a very unchurched part of the state. There was just not a lot of, uh, at least when you compare it to Bible Belt living or West Texas living, not a a lot of professing Christians, not a lot of church-going folks. And people were pretty honest about that. And so when my friends moved to Amarillo, they remarked one day in Sunday school, well, everybody in Amarillo is a Christian. Everybody in Amarillo goes to church. And what they're saying is, I've talked to a lot of people since I've lived here, and it seems like everybody knows Jesus and everybody has a church home. And what we tried to explain to them is, yes, in West Texas, if you ask people, where do you go to church, a lot of people are going to give you an answer. That does not mean that they're there one out of four Sundays even for worship or Bible study or anything of significance. They may say, that's where I go, but they may not really go. Because in our culture, in our sort of neck of the woods, it's just sort of a common thing. People, yeah, I I go to fill in the blank. And we also tried to say to them, a lot of the people that you talk to have heard about Jesus, have heard something about Jesus, have some sort of familiarity with a guy named Jesus, But it may not be the Jesus that we talk about when we get together on Sunday mornings and we sing and we preach and we have Bible studies. And so we wanted these people to understand, yes, the answer to the question, do you know Jesus, do you go to church, might be different in West Texas and Western New Mexico. But people in West Texas still need to meet the real Jesus. And they still need to find a real meaningful connection with people at church. And you've got to understand that and be ready to engage them. So... One of the things that I think has been very helpful for me, and uh, there's several books along this line, but this is the, the most recent one I've read, and I really like it. It's a book called The Original Jesus, and it's by, written by a guy named Daniel Darling. And it's a short book. If you like short books, this one's right up your alley. It's like 140, uh, 150 pages. So it's a, a quick, easy book. And the subtitle of the book, I think, is pretty self-explanatory, Trading the Myths that We Create for the Savior Who Is. He's saying we have all these myths about Jesus, all these crazy ideas about somebody named Jesus, and we want to trade all of those things in for the guy that he actually is, for the real thing, the original Jesus. And so I put a quote, I think it's on your notes, and I'm going to put it on the screen. I just want you to read it with me. He says, Jesus is quite popular. Even in our increasingly post-Christian culture, there are few places Jesus is not revered, if not hailed as a mascot for social causes. We have constructed a Christ in our own comfortable image. He has become the clay, and we have assumed the role of potters. Guided by our delicate sensibilities, we mold Jesus into a deity we can handle. Conform to our own preferences. 
My aim with this book is pretty simple. I want to peel away the faux Jesus we've constructed and expose the real Jesus. My only goal is to help knock down some Jesus myths, our ideas about Jesus that are either incomplete or totally false. And so he goes through, and the book is really simple. He gives 10 fake Jesuses in the book. And we're going to talk about not all of them because we don't have time to talk about all of them. I made notes for all of them and I thought I can't fit it all on here. We don't have enough time. So we had to cut a few of these guys out. You can read the book if you're interested in it. But we're going to talk about a few of these guys. And I just want to remind you why it's important for us to do this. I think uh, Darling's comment is helpful. But one of my favorite quotes of all time comes from a guy named A.W. Tozer. And if you like to read books, this is one of the guys that you should buy. Uh, Just skip over all the best-selling shelf at the Christian bookstore and go to the T section in Christian nonfiction and find Tozer and any book that he wrote will be fantastic. And this is what he says. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That our idea of God correspond as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us. He's saying, when you think about God, you might as well think about the real thing. You might as well not have all these crazy thoughts floating in your, in your mind about some God you've created in your own image or in your own likeness or suited to your own preferences. And that's exactly what Dan Darling is saying in this book. There is a real Jesus. This is who he is. And if your idea of Jesus doesn't line up with that, you need to get rid of your fake Jesus And you need to come to the real Jesus, the original Jesus. And so we're just going to go through several of these. Let's see, I gave you one, two, three, four, five, six. We're going to go over six of them. I'll mention the other four. You can read about them in the book if you'd like to do that. Before we jump into the the fake Jesuses, let me give you the application, just so we all know why this matters. Application first. Some people think they know Jesus, but they know a fake Jesus and they need to meet the real Jesus. And I'm just going to be real clear here, okay? When I say some people, I mean some people who come to church at Emmanuel Baptist Church on a Sunday morning and sit in this room and sing to Jesus and pray to Jesus, but in their mind, they've got the wrong guy up there, okay? When I say some people, I'm talking about some of your family members. If you just look them in the eyeball and say, do you believe in Jesus? They're going to say yes. But if you really dig down deep and figure out what it is they believe about that Jesus, you're going to realize you you got the wrong guy, right? It's like opening the phone book in Odessa, Texas, and you look for, let's just say in Odessa, the last name, uh, Hernandez, How many Hernandezes do you think you're going to find in Odessa? You say, well, I know a guy named Hernandez. Well, there's 500 of them listed here, and I know one of them. I don't want any of these other guys. I want the guy that I know. And that's what we're talking about with Jesus. You know people, and I know people who say, yeah, I know Jesus. You might as well be looking up the wrong name in the phone book because the guy they know is not the real guy. Okay? Here's the second reason this matters. Some people have rejected Jesus, but they rejected a fake Jesus, and they need to meet the real Jesus. 
And here's the thing. The real Jesus is way better than any of the fake ones. Way better. It's not like you have to settle for less with the real Jesus than you could get with one of these phony ripoffs. And some people have been presented the phony ripoff. Okay? I just jump ahead of myself a little bit. Some people have been presented a Jesus who, if you have enough faith, will do whatever you want him to do. If you have enough faith, Jesus will do whatever you want him to do. And they've gotten in a real tough spot in their life, and they've tried really, really, really hard to have enough faith, and Jesus didn't get them out of that tough spot, and they turn around and say, well, what good is that guy? I don't, obviously, he's not going to help my life in any way, shape, or form. I don't want anything to do with him. To which I say, I don't want anything to do with that Jesus either. But he's a phony ripoff. Let me introduce you to the real guy. So some people have, have rejected Jesus, but they rejected a fake. They need to meet the real Jesus. So here we go. Let's talk about some fake Jesuses. Number one, Guru Jesus, the great teacher. And I don't put that picture up there to, uh, to make fun of it or to mock it. Uh, but just to say, think back to children's Sunday school, you've probably seen a million pictures just like this. Uh, maybe you saw somebody put a picture like this up on a flannel graph board. And there was sort of Jesus just smiling and everybody sitting around smiling. And this just looks nice, lots of smiles. And it's just obvious when you look at the picture, Jesus is just sort of teaching and talking. And when you look at the picture, okay, it's like it just looks so encouraging and so uplifting and so nice. And everybody's just, this is the greatest stuff. And, you know, that's not always the picture in the in the New Testament when Jesus was teaching. I mean, sometimes Jesus opened his mouth and started talking and everyone walked away. I don't ever remember seeing that on flannel graph, like Jesus talking and everybody's leaving the flannel board to go somewhere else. But that happened. And the point here is to say that if your idea of Jesus is that he's just a great teacher, you got to fake Jesus. So some people would lump him in and say, look, you got Jesus and Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. and all kinds of inspirational teachers, the Dalai Lama and this guy and that guy, and it's just great teachers. The problem with this view is it doesn't jive, first of all, with church history, okay? It doesn't jive with church history. I know as Baptists, we don't talk a whole lot about creeds, church creeds, but if you go back and look at the, the earliest church creed, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed and some of these early documents where Christians got together and wrote down what they believed, none of them said, we believe Jesus is a great teacher. He is the greatest teacher. They did believe that, but what they got together and wrote down is we believe Jesus is God in human flesh. He is the God-man. And they wrote it down over and over and over, and they kicked people out of their churches who didn't believe that he was God because they said, no, the real guy, the guy we're talking about, he is God. Just a few things in the New Testament. You read that Jesus has divine attributes, When the demons meet Jesus over and over again, they say, you're the Holy One. Well, Old Testament says that God is the Holy One. The demons recognize Jesus is the Holy One. In the New Testament, Jesus does divine things like talking to storms that then listen to him and do what he tells them to do. In the New Testament, Jesus receives worship. 
Thomas bows down at his feet and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, Thomas, stop that. Get up. That's a little bit too much. He, he accepts it. C.S. Lewis hit the nail on the head. I know you've heard this. I didn't even bother to put it up on the screen. But he said, with Jesus, we can't, we can't fiddle around with this stuff about Jesus being a great moral teacher. He's either a lunatic, crazy man, or a liar. He's just deceiving everyone. Or he is who he says he is. He's God. You have to pick one of those three. And you can't settle for he's a great moral teacher because what he said about himself is, I'm God. Great moral teachers don't say that if it's not true. Inspiring teachers don't say that kind of thing and let people worship them if they shouldn't be worshiping them. Jesus let these things happen. He said these things. And Darling makes a great point. This is on your notes. The New Testament settles this debate by telling us that Jesus rose from the dead. This sets him apart from every other so-called, quote-unquote, great moral teacher. All the rest of them put in the ground, turned to dusty bones, still dead. You may have heard that there was some archaeologist who went to a site in Jerusalem where tradition says, one tradition says this is the the tomb where Jesus was buried and they built a church over that site. And archaeologists went in and they opened it up for the first time in many, many hundreds of years. And the big headline on a lot of websites was, still empty. Now, is it the one that he was buried in? We don't know 100%, but it's empty. Okay, If it's that one or another one, it's empty. He rose from the dead. And just look at Matthew 12, 40. Let me look at all of these. The verses I included here are not actual references to the resurrection, but they're Jesus talking about the resurrection. Matthew twelve forty, Jesus says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And you can look up the other references here. All passages where Jesus says, before it happened, I'm going to rise from the dead. And then he did it. Sets him apart from every other teacher. So if your Jesus is, he's just the guru, that's all he is, you got the wrong guy. Okay? Fake Jesus number two. The red letter Jesus, also known as the kinder deity. And I put a quote up here from a not Christian guy. From a guy that really hates Christians and would like to, to be rid of, of all of us, Richard Dawkins. And this is what he says. And he's just expressing this idea that a lot of Christians buy into. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. Petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, vindictive, bloodthirsty, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully, to which we say we're so impressed with all the big words that you can use. You're so, so smart. But what he's saying is this. God of the Old Testament seems really grumpy and mean, and Jesus seems like a pretty cool guy to me. I'm just going to tell you, it's not just Richard Dawkins that believes that. I talk to people who call themselves Christians, and they say that to me all the time, that sort of thing. They're reading through their Bible. Maybe they're trying to do like a daily Bible reading plan, and they're like, why is God so different in the Old Testament? Why is he so much different than Jesus is? 
Why is the God of the Old Testament so mean and the God of the New Testament is so nice? It's just anger, wrath, judgment in the old and in the new. It's just mercy, grace, love, forgiveness. Why is it so different? Some people buy into this idea that the red letters, the actual words of Jesus ought to carry more weight for us than all these old stories in the Old Testament, this, all this other stuff. And some people say, look, let's just stick with the red letters of Jesus and let's get rid of this Paul guy. Paul, he was kind of a jerk. He was kind of a hothead. He didn't like women very much. Let's get rid of Paul. Let's get rid of all this angry stuff in the Old Testament. Let's just have Jesus, just Jesus. He seemed like a nice guy, an easygoing guy. Let me give you a few thoughts about this. We're going to move quick. If you emphasize the red words at the expense of the rest of the Bible, it's an assault on the inspiration of Scripture. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the red letters are more inspired than the black ones. Nowhere. Nowhere. The words of the Bible are inspired. The ones that Jesus spoke and Matthew, Luke, and John, Mark, Luke, and John wrote down, and the ones that didn't come directly out of Jesus' mouth that the Holy Spirit inspired to be in the Scripture. They're all inspired. And when you sort of say, well, you know, Bible's here, but red letters are up here, you're assaulting all the inspiration of the rest of the Scriptures. You can't do that. I'm going to let you look up 2 Timothy and 2 Peter. Next, Jesus didn't see a gulf between the words of the Old Testament and his own teaching. Matthew 5. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I'm not coming to give you something totally, radically, just completely 100% different. I've come to fulfill those things, but not to abolish those things as if they're lesser and now you have something, something greater. Jesus believed in the truthfulness and the historicity of the Old Testament. He believed it was true. He believed it was accurate. In all of these verses, Jesus refers to the Old Testament as it's true, you can trust it, it's reliable, we believe it. And lastly, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would inspire his followers to write the New Testament, John 16. The helper's going to come. He's going to bring all these things to your mind. He's going to help you remember these things. Jesus didn't believe you could make this distinction between new and old, between red letters and black letters. And so if you've tried to to buy into that Jesus, unfortunately you've not listened to the real Jesus and you got the wrong guy. Here's the next one, one that I like. He calls him Braveheart Jesus, the manly deity. And I gave you those two pictures just to sort of help you understand the people who talk about Braveheart Jesus are reacting to sissified Jesus, right? So the picture on the left, you say, that's like a classic bearded woman picture. It's a woman, very effeminate, very passive, and they threw a beard on it and a light behind its head, and we call that Jesus. And a lot of art in the history of the church has portrayed Jesus in that way. And in recent times... There's been a reaction against that, and in some places, an overreaction against that, where we begin to say Jesus was like a brawler. He was like a cage fighter who drove a big pickup with mud flaps, carried a shotgun slung over his shoulder all the time, 
And he was just, look at him up there. He's ripping the cross beam in half, just breaking it in half like he's a member of the power team. Just snap it in half, just big, burly guy. You know that women far outnumber men in church attendance, right? Not necessarily here by a large margin, but just across the United States. You would probably not be surprised if I told you that women ages 25 to 50 are the most lucrative market for Christian books. They're the ones who go to Mardell and buy stuff, right? It's not typically, I'm not trying to be hateful to anybody, it's not the guys driving up and down university with the mud flaps and the shotgun rack in the back of the truck walking in and buying Jesus devotional books at Mardell. It's just not. They're not marketed to those people. And I hate to break it to you, but Christian books and stuff, Christian stuff you buy at a store, it's a business. They sell it and they produce it and they make it for the people who are going to buy it, right? Um, On top of that, we live in a culture where a lot of men have abandoned their responsibility to provide and to protect and to lead, right? Right? You know that that's true. And we've, we've settled in a lot of places and a lot of families and a lot of neighborhoods for letting the government do the job of dads and letting schools do the job of dads and they just can't do the job of dads. And so sometimes there's this overreaction, sort of a hyper-masculinity, talking about Jesus where we, we just try to overcompensate for all of those deficiencies and we make Jesus into some sort of like superhero. And the favorite story of the people who fall into this trap would be Jesus making a whip and driving people out of the temple, right? He's just, he's this tough guy. He made a whip and Indiana Jones, he was cracking it on dudes and flipping over tables and all this stuff. I'll be the first to agree that I don't, I don't want the guy on the left up there on the screen. I don't think that fits the, the picture of the New Testament in any way, shape, or form. But I think the guy on the right is equally buffoonish. Absolutely ridiculous. And so let me give you a few thoughts about this. Number one, Jesus models masculinity in the form of a warrior king. Absolutely true. But he also models masculinity in the form of a shepherd servant. Look at John 11.35. Some of you guys memorized this verse like in Sunday school when you had a challenge in fifth grade to memorize a verse and the teacher would buy you ice cream or something. Oh, I'm in the wrong book. I'm in Luke. Sorry, John eleven thirty five. 35. This is Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus and John just tells us that Jesus wept when he stood there. Not like he got a little choked up and he was fighting back the tears and He was kind of, you know, doing the eye wipe and sniffling. He wept. Okay? It's not a hyper-masculine view that our society may buy into, but it's a guy who was willing to stand there publicly and weep. Look at John 13. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
During supper, when the devil had put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he'd come from God, was going back to God. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So if your view of Jesus is this great, big, huge warrior king, but he can't get down and put an apron on and wipe the feet, clean the feet of his disciples, you got the wrong guy. Period. End of story. You got the wrong guy. Secondly, to respond to Braveheart Jesus, Jesus is the perfect example for all Christians, men and women, married people, single people, young people, old people, all of us. Because more than anything, he embodied what it means to be truly and fully human. Human. And if you only look at Jesus as this is how you be a tough guy, then you're sort of cheapening the example that he sets for all people. Old people, young people, women, men, married people, single people, college students, senior adults. And he shows us what it means to be truly human. Here's the next one. I do not have a picture for this because there were none appropriate on the internet. But this is Dr. Phil Jesus, also known as the Cosmic Therapist. We talked about this guy last week when we talked about moral therapeutic deism. He's just the guy that's there to make your life easy. And uh, I'll just be honest, this guy lives in a lot of quote-unquote conservative churches in the pulpits. And he stands up and he says things like, I'm gonna, we're going to spend a, a month and I'm going to give you five steps to how to live courageously. How, how you can be more brave. And he stands up and he says, we're going to spend the next month talking about how you can have control over your finances. And then he stands up the next month and he says, we're going to spend this month talking about how you can have the best marriage ever. And everything that comes out of the mouth, everything that you talk about is just a guy who's there to make every aspect of your life better, just sort of one facet at a time. Let's shore this up. Let me give you some advice here. I'll give, give you some, some handy tips in this part of your life. But Jesus told Nicodemus that his greatest need was not better moral guidance, but new birth, Right? You don't need five steps in how to be a better Pharisee, Nicodemus. You need to be born again, John 3. Jesus calls people to die to themselves daily in their pursuit of him. Let's look at Luke 9 real quick. Luke 9, 23. He said to all... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. If you're Jesus only acts as a therapist to make you feel better when you're down, to make your life better when it's rocky, you've missed the real guy. The real guy calls you to new birth and then to die to yourself. Kind of paradoxical, right? Okay, the next one, the prosperity Jesus, also known as the genie Jesus, right? You rub the lamp, genie comes out, and you just sort of get wishes. This is the guy I talked about earlier. If you have enough faith, 
He's going to come through and he's going to give you whatever it is that you may want or need. This is the word of faith movement. This is a lot, a lot of the preachers, not all, but a lot of the preachers that you will find on television, a lot of the people that you will find on the bestseller shelf at the Christian bookstore would fall into this trap 100%. Um, Common sense tells you that this is only an American thing, only a Western thing, right? Um, In Somalia, where the average life expectancy of a new Christian is like 18 days, they don't watch Joel Osteen. And it's not because they can't get it, okay? Even though they probably can't in a lot of places. It's because those people who live in the real world, you realize you don't live in the real world. That's normal, historically, what they're experiencing, not what you're experiencing. Those people look at that and they say, you got to be kidding me. That's not how... That's not how this deal works. That's not what I signed up for. It's not what I expect. It's not what the Bible promises me. So they know it's silly. Biblically, here's a response to the genie Jesus. Nowhere does Jesus promise financial or material prosperity. In fact, most of his followers found the opposite. And if you need a refresher course, flip over to Hebrews 11. You tell me how to square this with the genie Jesus and I'll think about it. Hebrews 11 verse 32. What more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. Who through faith. They had faith. You don't talk about faith. Those guys had faith. They conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mountains of lions. Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Up to that point, you say, yeah, man, that sounds great. All of that stuff, receiving the dead back. You talk about faith. And then just without even missing a beat. I mean, doesn't even take a breath. Some were tortured. They refused to accept release. Meaning... They gave him a chance to go free. All you got to do is say, Caesar is Lord. That's all you got to say. Take a little bit of the incense, pinch it on the altar, and say, Caesar is Lord. You and your family go free. That's it. We're not asking for much. They refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Killed with the sword. Some of them went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All of these, though commended through their faith, there it is again, they had faith. The problem was not that they didn't have enough faith to pull some kind of miracle out. They just didn't receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. When that verse 40 says God has promised something better for us, it's like a big slap in the face to all these prosperity guys to say you're selling everybody short. 
You're promising them all this wealth and this health and this happiness and this prosperity in this world, and it's like you're giving them the short end of the stick. Give them the real deal. God has promised them something better, and you're not even offering it to them. So that's the wrong Jesus. It's fake Jesus. Lastly, last one we're going to talk about is the BFF Jesus. He's your best buddy. And uh, you can find all kind of t-shirts like that. That one's a little bit less sacrilegious than a lot of them. But you can find them online and you can buy them. And guess what? People sell them online and they're available because people do buy them. Right? Don't sell things unless people are buying them. So you can find stuff like this on 8 million websites when you search it into Google because there's a lot of people who want a t-shirt that just says that. He's just my BFF. Best friends forever. So here's a few thoughts. Uh, Remember that Jesus gets to define the nature of your friendship. And I want you to look what Jesus says in John 15. John 15, verse 14 says, You are my friends if what? If you do what I command you to do. Now back up to verse 12. Are you ready for this? This is my commandment. Some of you are singing the song already in your head when you read this verse. This is my commandment that you love one another. How? Just like I loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. I am commanding you to love each other just like I've loved you, sacrificially, giving of myself for your good. And then he says, look, you're my friends if you do what I command you. And you ought to just, if you like to make notes in your Bible, you ought to circle the word command in verse 14 and draw a line up to verse 12 and circle it and say, those two things go together. That's the commandment. That's the immediate command that he's talking about. Jesus gets to define your friendship. You don't have any other friends like that. At least I hope you don't have any other friends like that. Friends that say to you, I'll be friends with you as long as you do everything I tell you to do exactly the way I tell you to do it. Humanly, those are not our friends. But Jesus is more than just your friend because he says, you're my friend if you do what I tell you to do. Secondly, remember how John responded when he saw his good friend Jesus face to face. And we'll look over at Revelation 1. The Bible says that John and Jesus were very close when Jesus was on the earth. And so you may think that Revelation chapter 1, when John was an old man, that he may, um, he may be thinking about uh, how excited he was to see his best friend, how he missed him so much, and just look at We'll start Revelation 1, 12. John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice 
like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. That's different than your BFF on this earth. That's a guy that John, when he saw one of his closest friends on the other side of the resurrection, falls down in his face like a dead man. In reverence, in fear, in awe, trembling, and terrified. So if you have a view of Jesus that says he's your best buddy, you've got the wrong guy. Here's, here's the other four that he mentions in the book. I just want to mention them to you so you know. He talks about post-church Jesus, the bodiless Jesus. This would be the people who say, look, I have Jesus, but I don't need to go to church or anything like that. It's just me and Jesus. No big deal. And it's strange to think about a head not having a body because the Bible describes Jesus as the head and the church as the body. And that's a, a strange thought, but some people buy into that. Legalist Jesus, the guy who gives rules, the rule giver. Uh, American Jesus, the patriotic savior. Um, Hard to translate that guy when you're a missionary in Afghanistan to Muslims. Left-wing Jesus is the socialist savior. Um, You hear about this guy a lot from certain political groups and parties and politicians that talk about what Jesus wants us to share and love and so the government is going to share and love and spread things around because that's what Jesus would want us to do. And so he talks about these four, and you can read about it if you want to in the book. As we finish, I want to put that application back up, and I just want to remind you, okay, of why all these things are important. Some of the people that you know and care about, some of those folks, they think they know Jesus, but the guy that they know is not the real guy. And you have the obligation, I have the obligation to lovingly, kindly, prayerfully, patiently do our best to help them see and understand the guy that you know is not the guy that this book talks about. And some people that you know want absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. And I'll be honest with you, for some people, they know exactly what the Bible says about Jesus and they don't want anything to do with him. But an awful lot of people where we live, where people have had a decent amount of exposure to church, they think, oh, I know all about Jesus. I grew up going to such and such, and I don't want anything to do with that. And your job and my job is to say, man, I know you grew up going to church, and I know you think you've heard a lot about Jesus, but I think the guy that you're rejecting is not the guy that you actually read about in the Scriptures. So you've got to understand, I've got to understand, some of these phony, faux, fake Jesuses that are out there. So that when you meet somebody and they smile and they say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, you don't just sort of walk away thinking, well, well, good. There you go. We're on the same page. But you're ready and you're capable of sort of talking with them and engaging with them about who the real Jesus is. So I'm going to pray for us and we'll, we'll call this series done. Father, we're grateful for your word, and we're grateful for the truths that we find about Jesus. Father, we pray that you would forgive us when we buy into the, the phonies, 
and the imposters. And we pray for wisdom as we talk with people, our kids and our grandkids and our relatives and our coworkers, our neighbors, as we talk to them about who Jesus is and what he's calling them to. Father, give us wisdom, give us discernment as we try to share the good news about Jesus with people who need to hear it. Father, at the end of the day, we are broken vessels. We are are incapable of doing the things that you've called us to do. And our prayer is simply that you would use us in spite of ourselves. Father, we love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here's how we're going to end tonight. Next week, we do not have Bible study. We're going to go caroling. And so we do this in December. We will meet everybody down in the large fellowship hall. Uh, We're going to visit some of our homebound folks, um, some folks at a couple of different nursing homes. We're going to send people out in teams, and uh, we're going to make deliveries. We take fruit baskets and some things that our kiddos have made for these, uh, these people. We're going to sing to them. Make sure that they know we care about them, we love them, and uh, pay them a visit. So hope that you'll come for that. Tonight, we're going to end by praying for our world missions offering. And uh, I just want to give you some, some basic information about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering or our world missions offering. And uh, then I'm going to show you a short video that's a little bit different than some of the videos I've showed you before. So did I have those slides up there? There we go. Okay. We're a Southern Baptist church. As of November of this year, we have 3,651 total field personnel. If that is a number that you've tracked in your life, you might be looking at that thinking, no way, we have way, way, way more than that. No, we don't. We don't have way more than that. Um, The current IMB president is a guy named David Platt. He's been there for maybe a couple years now. Um... When he took over, we were running massive budget shortfalls. And by we, I mean just Baptists, the International Mission Board. And we kept sending people. We didn't have money to send them. And everything was red, 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 running out of money. And it was really an unsustainable situation. And so he sort of got in and said, well, we can't do that anymore. We have to call people home. We don't have the money to keep them there on the field. We can't just keep spending money that we don't have. We're not the United States government, right? So we've got to call these people home. So they called a lot of missionaries home, sent word out to all of our field missionaries and said, if you think that you don't need to be on the field, this would be a good time for you to come home or go do something different. Or if you think that you can support yourself on the field in a business or by doing something, this would be a great time to do it because we don't, we're just, we're out of money. So for a long time, we were well over 5,000 field personnel as Southern Baptists. And so right now we're at 3,651, um, significantly less. But financially, that's what we can support. And all of those things have been cleaned up and put into order like they need to be. Um, you say, why are we adding field personnel 405 when we're calling people home? Well, people retire and people reach the end of their term and come home anyways. And so they still have sent some new missionaries, just not as many as we normally would. Um, look down there at the bottom, bottom two numbers. People groups engaged by the International Mission Board. A people group 
is a group of people that if you were a missionary, we send you overseas, right? And you can go to this people group and you can share the gospel with all of the people in that group because they have a common culture and language. And when you bump up against the edge of that people group, you say, well, these people are outside of my people group. They speak a different language. Unless you're a language whiz and you can just go overseas and learn two languages late in life, you're going to be limited to one people group. They speak this language and they live in this country and they're in this place, right? So there's 896 different people groups engaged by the International Mission Board. There are in the world... As of fall of this year, 3,060 unreached people groups who are not engaged. Meaning there's 3,060 groups of people in the world who are not reached with the gospel. They don't have churches. They don't have scriptures in their language. They don't know about Jesus. And there is not a single soul there to tell them any of those things. Nobody. Not a person. And you say, well, how big is a people group? Well, like in the Amazon jungle, there's some people groups that have like 50 people in it. Like that's the people group, 50 people living in a, you know, a little secluded village. In Eastern Asia, there's people groups that have tens of millions of people in it. Tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people that don't have a single missionary there to tell them about Jesus. There's, they have no access to the gospel, period. Um, put the next slide up for me. This is what it costs to support a missionary family. This is the average. Uh, when Southern Baptists take our missions offering and we all send it to the same place, International Mission Board, and we send out missionaries, this is what it costs to support a missionary family for one year, 58200 That's this year. That includes housing, salary, children's education, medical expenses, vehicles, transportation, retirement, that keeps those missionaries there on the field. So if you have friends who go to different types of Baptist churches, sometimes if you're a missionary, you spend six months on the field sharing about Jesus, and then you come home for six months, and you go talk to people and say, I need your money. Can you give me some money so I can go back? And you do this back and forth all the time. The way we do it is we all pool our money, and we say, you guys go. Just go and don't worry about that money stuff. You go and you tell people about Jesus, and that's what it costs. On average, some places are way higher than that. Some places are way, way lower than that. But that's the average. Um, this is what we gave last year in 2015. Our world missions offering was $40,672. And we split our world missions offering up between international missions, North American missions, and state missions. Okay, We give 90% to international, 5 to North American and 5% to state. So last year, we sent to international missions, what we're talking about here, $36,604. So enough to keep a missionary family on the field for a little over half a year is what we did last year. So far this year, our world missions total is at 24000 so it's pretty good. We've had people give throughout the year, and we've had some gifts started to come in. Uh, we have three more Sundays this year, and um, we'll see where we end up. I can tell you this, I'm hopeful that we continue to move toward our church. I think it's entirely reasonable for our church 
that we give enough to this world missions offering that we can support a missionary family on the field for one year. No reason we shouldn't be able to do that. And may not happen this year, may not happen next year, but that's the direction uh, that I want us to go. So I'm going to show you a quick video. It's not a video about missionaries. It's about uh, people like you and one way that you can be involved um, in addition to giving how you can be involved in missions. So we're going to watch the video. I won't say anything after it. I'm going to let you just pray uh, for a couple of minutes, and then I'll close us in prayer and we'll wrap up. Lewis is 83. I'll, I will be 83 soon. Very I'm soon. 82. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 82 and he's 83. We feel extremely blessed to be to have that the Lord has given us good health at this period. We get up at 6 and we get a cup of coffee and the newspaper and look at that a little bit and then we open our Bibles and read that together and we pray for the missionaries. Then later in the day when we have a coffee break uh, we, that's when we get out prayer letters and brochures that come from the IMB about unreached people groups and so on. Well, I don't know how many times we've said to each other, this is a person we've never met, and we sure hope we get to meet her sometime because she <laughs> just seemed like she's doing such a wonderful job. And I don't know of anything more important than that, uh, uh, that call to global prayer in all of these places and do it as if we were all one, uh, one body, one person. Father, what a good, a good thing for us to gather together and not only to sing and not only to study, but to think about and to pray about missions. And we pray for our church, and we want to be a church that is serious about the Great Commission. We want to be serious about going. We pray for our teams that will go to Canada this summer and Alaska this summer that you would use us for your glory and for the spread of your kingdom, for the good of your church. Father, we thank you for the privilege of giving and sending people to, to difficult places, places where a, a one-week team can't do a whole lot of good. Um, we pray for our missionaries who are far from home in the holiday season and um, pray that it would... It would be a time of celebrating Jesus, even as they're there to tell people about Jesus, that they would take time to, to worship and to reflect, and Father, that you would use them 
and uh, the story of Christmas to bring people into your kingdom. We pray for our church as we give this offering that you would put it on our hearts to give sacrificially and to do it happily and gladly and to do it with excitement and joy that we get to be a part of, of how you are growing your kingdom around the world. Father, help us not to be negligent in prayer help us to be mindful to to pray for our community and to pray for our country and to pray for the witness of our church and even to pray for our missionaries and we thank you for this couple this godly couple and the example they set of of taking time in their day of building a schedule and a routine where they they think about you they think about the scriptures and they think about our missionaries Father, I'm grateful for the folks who come on Wednesday nights, folks who are here and those who have been coming couldn't be with us tonight. I thank you for these people, and I pray that the things that we talk about are an encouragement and a help and a challenge to them. Father, I pray that you would use them as we gather together and then as we leave, uh, that we would be salt and light all for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.